You are listening to Studying Pixels, a podcast on game studies and video game culture. I'm Dan Hughes, your Japanese scholar from Texas, and、uh, we've had a bit of a strange schedule these past few weeks because it's another solo episode. That's right, we're、uh, trading off and on for no other reason than、uh, our schedules didn't quite align, but also、um, I'm coming to you on the back end of COVID. So、uh, I wanted to quickly shout out please keep getting your booster shots. Please、uh, keep taking care of yourselves because. Boy, oh boy, I was、uh, laid out with this thing this time. So, Stefan will not be joining me this week because he、uh, is otherwise engaged, doing some fantastic things.、Um, but very soon we will be reunited. So, stay tuned for that. But in the meantime, you can listen to Studying Pixels every Sunday on studyingpixels.com and wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, well, you may be wondering, Dan, what did you do with all of your downtime from COVID? And、uh, it may not surprise you that I had been playing video games the entire time.、Well, that's not strictly true. I also attended my brother's graduation、uh, from college. Congratulations, Matt. I know you'll be listening. It was a really nice ceremony and、uh, just cool to be on the back end of all of the Hughes boys having graduated now. So. In between the celebration, though, I was playing a lot of video games. Namely, I was playing a lot of Final Fantasy. Because the Final Fantasy Pixel Remaster came out, and、uh, that's Final Fantasies 1 through 6. And、uh, they've been really lovingly kind of put together in a compilation、uh, by Square Enix for a celebration of Final Fantasy. Um, I'm going to get into kind of the history of how that happened and why we're seeing it now, why, why I'm talking about it now.、Uh, but before I get into that,、uh, I would like to again recommend that everybody stay healthy and stay safe so that when you play the Final Fantasy Pixel Remaster, it's not with a fever and under about five million blankets. I'd much rather you play it with a、uh, non foggy head without a horrible cough. Stay safe,、uh, stay safe out there, everybody. But before we get into all of that, I do want to recommend Studying Pixels Plus because one of the things that I listened to while I was very sick was our own show. Yes, I'm a fan of our own show because I'm not always on it. Sometimes I have COVID. And when I'm listening to these backlogged episodes, I try to listen to Studying Pixels Plus. You can support us by joining、uh, on there, throwing in a dollar or three or a few more if you're feeling very generous. All of our episodes are there entirely ad free. Plus, you get a lovely sticker with our mascot Pixel Coon on it. There are monthly plus episodes, and you can go to studyingpixels.com slash plus to find out more. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on LinkedIn.comslash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. 
Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. I want to take you back, as I usually do when it's a solo episode, to a time in my own history that was full of fantasy RPGs. Well, I say full of fantasy RPGs. Uh, it wasn't really full of fantasy RPGs. Something that's a point of contention with uh, my friends is that I kind of can't stand medieval fantasy. Uh, never really understood the hype around Game of Thrones. Lord of the Rings is about as far as I take it. Uh, and yet, I'm a huge Final Fantasy fan. The only reason I can think of is that Final Fantasy isn't strictly medieval fantasy. There's a lot of robots and industrialization and uh, strange JRPG tropes that show up that obviously make it a little bit different from your standard sword and shield kind of thing. But boy, did I love these games when I was a kid. It was a real entree for me into the world of video games. And, you know, if you asked me how I stumbled into it, I honestly don't know that I could tell you. Final Fantasy is one of those series that I feel like has been around in my life forever in one way or another, whether it was being played by a friend or it was something that I had stumbled on in a secondhand shop, or if it was just the brand new experience I had playing Final Fantasy X for the first time. That was the first game that came out that I remember being new that I jumped onto. But like with any great game, especially a great game that has 10 entries, as a young kid, you start thinking, okay, well, where did this game come from? What are the other nine entries? How can I get my hands on them? And uh, I'll be honest, it was about as hard as it is today to get your hands on those older games because they weren't all available for you. Final Fantasy 1 through 10 at in the early 2000s was a weird kind of landscape, especially in the West. There weren't They weren't all originally released over here. It had a really strange kind of release schedule. So to kind of break that down really briefly, Final Fantasy 1, as we know it today, Final Fantasy, came out on the, the Nintendo Entertainment System. That came out just as it did here, as it did in Japan. But then Final Fantasy 2 did not come out in the West. Final Fantasy 2, the story of Therian, Guy, Rosa, these characters, that came out in Japan, but Final Fantasy II for the West was actually Final Fantasy IV for the Japanese. And then Final Fantasy III for the West was actually Final Fantasy VI. So for a long time, we didn't have Final Fantasy II, III, or V. I don't really know why they did this. Now, I have my suspicions because I've played through 1 through 6 recently as the Final Fantasy Pixel remasters have come out, but I'm going to put a pin in that for now and go back to the explanation. Final Fantasy was a major uh, JRPG, obviously, both in Japan and in the West. But us Westerners didn't get all of it. And so it kind of came out piecemeal. I remember at the time that I was really into Final Fantasy X, I wanted to go back and play all of the games. Final Fantasy VII, VIII, and IX were pretty easy to get because they had all been released on PlayStation. So you could go to a local game store 
Usually you could find them in the, honestly, the bargain bin for about five bucks, which seems ludicrous to think about today, but that's how I got those games. Final Fantasy 1 and 2 were released as a kind of anniversary edition. And this is the actual 1 and 2, not 1 and 4. Bear with me, this gets very complicated. 1 and 2 were released on the PlayStation in these beautiful remasters that integrated more of Yoshitaka Amano's art style and added some uh, CG cutscenes, which were really cool, especially at the time. This was the, let's see, like the late 90s this would have come out, probably 98 or 99, at least in Japan. And we ended up getting that over here too. And that was called, confusingly, the Final Fantasy Origins Package. Why is that confusing? Because there is now a game called Final Fantasy Origins, which is also roughly around the same time period as Final Fantasy 1. There's going to be a quiz later, so just be sure that you're taking notes. We didn't get 5 until the 5 and 6 dual package was released on the PlayStation. That was called the Final Fantasy Anthology. Now, we had gotten 6, but up to that point, we had known it as Final Fantasy 3. So we got Final Fantasy V, and now, in the early 2000s, the only one missing for the actual uh, chronology of Final Fantasy was Final Fantasy III. We never got Final Fantasy III until the Final Fantasy Pixel remasters were released last year on the PC. Now, some of you may be scratching your heads because you may have played it as a kid. What you played was a remastered version for the Nintendo DS. It was completely built from the ground up. It had 3D models. It had a different kind of job system um, with different job abilities that were explained differently. So it was, in essence, a very different game. Weirdly, we didn't get the original version of Final Fantasy III in its pixel 8-bit glory until last year on the PC. So it's a lot of preamble to basically get to, hey, now we can play all of the Final Fantasies. And we can play them all in this beautiful Final Fantasy Pixel remaster. It's a really great time if you want to catch up on these old RPG games, especially with Final Fantasy 16 coming out, because they are so fun to play in order. And I realized that I had kind of deprived myself of that fun because, well, I had deprived myself or maybe Japan had deprived me of it with their strange release over here. But... What is the Pixel Remaster? Well, it's Final Fantasy 1 through 6, numbered correctly, that were released for the PC last year. They were on Steam. But this year, uh, in mid-April, they were released to the Switch and to the PS4. And so now, you can basically get every Final Fantasy game on modern consoles. This is a huge deal, because you had to pick and choose and go all over the place for these games beforehand, and, I mean, I might do that because you know I'm a little nuts, but the average gamer, the average RPG enjoyer even, is not going to take the time to do that. So it's great that they're all available and that you can really enjoy these stories for more or less what they were when they were released originally. The graphics are polished up, but they still have the pixel style, which is of course where they get the name, the pixel remaster. And there's some really nice quality of life improvements. They've added uh, sort of like what they did in the 7, 8, and 9 remaster that they put out on the PS4. They added these boost modes that allow you to um, get more money and get more experience. You can kind of multiply it up to four times, which honestly, 
I used it kind of intermittently um, to lessen the grind of the game, which I think was really nice. Because remember, these games came out back in the mid to late 80s and the early 90s when buying a game meant that lengthening a video game, the way to do it was to just make it grindier and kind of, let's be honest, waste your time a little bit. So for going through these games to get the story out of them and see the tropes of the Final Fantasy series, it was a lot of fun to use this kind of boost system. And honestly, I still had a lot of challenge in the games because they're not just, you know, it's not just the kind of game where the higher your level, the easier the game is. Of course, that's true to an extent, but there's still a lot of strategy involved, especially as the games progress and the systems get more and more complex. But I'll get into that. There are beautiful orchestral scores of the old Final Fantasy music. And a really nice thing is that you can actually switch between the old arrangements and the new arrangements, which I found myself doing kind of frequently just to see or listen to what the new song sounded like. And as I mentioned, they were released in the order they were actually released in Japan. So you can play one through six and see the evolution of the series as it goes on. So these are not continuous stories. If you're unfamiliar with Final Fantasy, it's not that two is a direct sequel to one. It's that it's sort of the tropes, the aesthetics, the themes, these all kind of carry over. If you want to learn more about that, we actually have an episode on the history of Final Fantasy in which we explored those themes of romanticism, fate, destiny, and other uh, Japanese tropes that kind of pop in intermittently. So it's more of a study in playing through these games chronologically it's more of a study of coming to understand how they evolved and where we are where we are today, or why we are where we are today, I should say. In short, it's a really nice way to play these games that are really hard to find otherwise, especially nowadays, and it's a great opportunity to play the entire series on your own console of your own choosing. I am very big on game preservation and game history, and I don't like piracy, We've discussed this on the show before. It's a very, it's a moral kind of morass, I, f I find. And I'm of the mindset that if the game is available for me to purchase and I can play it, I want to do that because I enjoy these games and where we've come from historically. So if you're like me, it's, I would say, a reasonable price for each game. They're each under about $20, or you can get the full package for about $80 and get the full six games. I think it's worth it, especially if you're a Final Fantasy fan. And honestly, I would say, if you're not a Final Fantasy fan, but you have interest with the new game coming out, or all the talk about Final Fantasy VII Remake, uh, do yourself a favor and pick these up. They're quick games, they're fun, they're deep. Uh, they kind of give you a lot of context for where a lot of different storytelling in video games is nowadays. So before I get into the bulk of this episode... I do want to give a thumbs up to this remaster. Uh, it is worth indulging, whether you're a newcomer or you want to experience these stories again. So you may be asking, why am I doing this? Well, after that glowing uh, review, I am not sponsored by Square Enix. We at Studying Pixels have not gotten a review copy or anything like that. Uh, but I love Final Fantasy. It's one of my favorite series of all time. And 
I was really excited when this came out for the PC last year, but I'm not a big PC gamer. I, I just kind of can't bring myself to play games on the PC. It's a weird block that I have, uh, that actually Stefan, uh, as you listen to this, let's put a pin in that. That may be a good episode, uh, PC versus uh, console gaming and why we choose one or the over the other. But that said, I was really excited for these to come out. And I made a deal with myself that if they didn't come out for the consoles, I would go back and play them on PC. Luckily, that deal uh, didn't come to fruition, and I'm able to play them as I would like on my PlayStation. Um, and when I got these games, I didn't want to do like a big dissertation or a big uh, series review on Final Fantasy. My only goal really was to get all the platinum trophies on each game so that I could definitively say, as time goes on, that I have every platinum trophy for every Final Fantasy game, uh, because that's just a notch in my belt that I would like to show off to, if no one else, my friends and family. But after going through Final Fantasy and Final Fantasy II, I noticed a lot of great tropes that we had mentioned in our previous episode. And I made the decision to go into it with a more analytical bent to enjoy these games, but also kind of just do a deep dive into these themes and tropes that I love so much about this game and the game series. So for me to talk about that, first, I would recommend that you listen to our previous episode on the history of Final Fantasy. We discussed a lot of these tropes of uh, destiny, fate, romanticism, teamwork, optimism, uh, fighting against cynicism, a lot of these things kind of pop up and make Final Fantasy very special. And beyond that, I want to talk about this age theory of video games that I have. So if you've ever engaged with comic books, you know that there's the golden age of comic books, and that's the first ever comic books when Superman and Batman were invented, right? Then, uh, what, what that golden age did was it set the precedent for what those stories were going to be like. It kind of reinvented the wheel in a lot of ways and said, we have this new medium, comic books. We have these new characters, superheroes. This is what they're able to do. This is the kind of story that we're going to explore with them. And this is what you can expect. He lifts a car over his head. That's impossible. What else can he do, right? That's what the golden age was of comic books in a nutshell. Then comes the Silver Age. The Silver Age is about 20 or 30 years after that. Usually it's uh, described as being in the late 50s to early 70s. And this is when you get things like Zebra Batman, Batman in a zebra suit, or Batman has a, a, a belt that has all the colors of the rainbow on it, and he can turn things different colors. And Superman gets crypto a dog with all of his same powers, right? Things, for lack of a better word, get kind of silly, but they also explore the tropes and themes from the golden age in a way that tends to kind of break them apart and show you what they are at their core, which is ideas, beautiful, silly, wild ideas that get to be explored in a kind of low stakes, um, no holds barred, really fun era of comic books. Then you have the Bronze Age, right? 
The Bronze Age can be looked at a few different ways. I think the way that I look at it, when you start looking at um, the mid-80s to probably the early 2000s, it's the kind of stuff like the death of Superman, right? Or uh, Batman Nightfall, where Bane breaks his back. It's these stories that, on the surface, are a really interesting idea, but kind of fall apart as you explore them. And furthermore, the continuity of the world is so convoluted and so strange that you're lost in these stories, and you kind of can't find out what's going on. You need to have read 800 issues of Superman to understand this one issue of Batman. You need to, you need to have read all of these different Robin comics to understand where Superman and Batman are in this particular story. It gets really complex, really convoluted. Some good ideas in there, but it's kind of lost the plot a little bit. Then you have, I think, where we are now, and I'm not a comics master, but I'm just using this for the uh, analogy here. You have the Renaissance, where they sort of start over. You go back to the tropes of the Golden Age, and you say, okay, what made these things incredible to begin with? What made them so interesting to talk about? And you iterate on those tropes and those themes. Maybe you change them up a little bit, but for the most part, you keep things the same, and you use those Golden Age tropes to tell new stories with the same kind of oomph and feeling that you imagine somebody in the 40s or 50s may have gotten reading that first Superman comic. So that was a lengthy thing, uh, a lengthy diatribe on comics so that I can explain that I think it works for long-running video game franchises as well. Specifically, I have a theory about Final Fantasy, that the golden age of Final Fantasy is Final Fantasy 1 through 6. This is the golden age. The pixel remasters are basically going back to this golden age. This is where all the tropes come from. This is where the game was, uh, this, the series was figuring out what it was doing, what kind of stories it was telling, what kind of worlds that could be created. And it was really perfecting what I would consider to be one real story. Final Fantasy 1 through 6, to me, are like F. Scott Fitzgerald writing The Great Gatsby. And what I mean by that is he had a few cracks at other books that kind of felt like The Great Gatsby, and then he made Final Fantasy VI. That may be a weird distillation and a weird analogy, but trust me, it fits. The golden age of Final Fantasy was a lot of sussing out and figuring out what the games were going to be like, which all culminated in Final Fantasy VI, which I think most people would agree is one of, if not the pinnacle of the Final Fantasy series. Now, I, I disagree with that, but that's for another episode. The Silver Age, I would contend, is Final Fantasy VII through, through X. Uh, this is where a lot of the ideas from the Golden Age were changed and made different, and new ideas were put in, crazy ideas were put in, and it still retained the soul of those original stories, but they were doing incredibly new things. Silver Age doesn't mean it's taking a step down. It just means that it's evolving. And I would say 7 through 10 are a hell of an evolution. The Bronze Age, Final Fantasy 12 to 15. I would include 10 to in here probably too. Uh, a lot of weird stuff going on. A lot of convoluted JRPG tropes. A lot of things that people are maybe tired of or don't want to invest the time in. Uh, and I think that there's a lot of good in there. A lot of good. 
Uh, but there's also, there's also a lot of weird and a lot of complicated. And then we get to the Renaissance, which is Final Fantasy VII Remake to the present day, which I'm going to include 16 into, where again, we're going back to those things that worked from the Golden Age and obviously from the Silver Age as well with Final Fantasy VII and iterating on it in a way that tells new stories while retaining the same heart of the themes and, and tropes that existed in those earlier ages. So I wanted to play through all of the Final Fantasy games to see if this theory that I have, breaking down the games into the ages, like I did with the comic books, holds any water, or if I'm just waxing nostalgic for these games. Honestly, I, I could see the latter being a probability, uh, but I do like to think that I go into video game analysis with a modicum of uh, objection, uh, objection, oh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, I go into it thinking the way that I should think instead of uh, putting on my rose-tinted goggles, unless I'm deliberately doing that. Now that said, this is something that I wanted to break down into a few episodes this first episode here, um, after that long preamble that I've given, I'm not going to go into all six games. I want to talk about one through three um, because there's a lot of interesting stuff in there. And then Stefan will be joining me for the breakdown of four through six because I think that that will benefit from a conversation and not just a, uh, a lecture from a guy who has spent a lot of time in this uh, 8-bit world of fantasy. So right now, we're going to take a bit of a break. Then I'm going to come back with my breakdown of Final Fantasy, Final Fantasy 2, and Final Fantasy 3. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. 
In four weeks, the typical new user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. You know, it's funny. Whenever we do these solo episodes, I always think to myself, there's no way I'm going to be able to fill time for 45 minutes to an hour with something that I'm talking about, especially when it's just myself. Uh, but then I remember I'm a, uh, I'm a blowhard, I guess. So we got plenty of time left. Now, if you have engaged with the early Final Fantasy games, you will know that not all of the tropes emerged at once. A lot of them came out kind of piecemeal, and different games added them kind of sporadically. And I think that I had forgotten this in as much as I didn't realize that the first three games do a lot of setup for four through six. And that's really where everything kind of culminates. You really see the groundwork being laid with one, two, and three. And then four, five, and six iterate on that in a way that makes them bigger stories with more character development and leaning more into these tropes, but also a lot more interesting gameplay developments as well. But to get there, we have to understand the foundation that's being laid with Final Fantasy, because there's no better place to start than the beginning, which, interestingly enough, is also the end of all things, because Final Fantasy I is a really interesting story about a time loop devised by a madman who wants to live forever and remain in this world of his own creation so that he can perpetuate fear, war, hatred, and anger to keep himself living as a shell of a person for all time. Now, you may not have uh, realized that that's what Final Fantasy is about, but there it is. At its core, Final Fantasy I is a fantastic adventure, really simple. You play as the four warriors of light, chosen by some uh, hand of destiny to save the world from the threat of chaos. Chaos is an actual uh, person. It's a, it's a being that is exerting its will on this world and causing things to decay. The way that it's doing this is it's corrupted these four governing crystals that exist on the world that each uh, rule over a corresponding element. So there's earth, fire, water, and wind, four very familiar elements if you've ever engaged with a fantasy story. So you enter this world understanding that something has gone terribly wrong. And you're told that you are in control of this party of four people who can bring about the salvation of the world. It's your standard, uh, go and fight the, uh, you're, you're the force of light, go and fight the dark and make everything okay. But where it really shines, where Final Fantasy I is really uh, different from a lot of the other fantasy games that may have come out around the same time, is that there's a clear message that's permeating the entire game. And that is that helping others comes from a place of deep empathy and care and love for the world. Every NPC that you talk to is a little on edge because of what's going on in the world, but for the most part, they're willing to help you. And you get the sense that they're not just willing to help you because they're the you're the warriors of light and you've been prophesied to help the world and bring it back into balance. 
but because doing that is the right thing to do. There's a scene really early on where you realize the power that the Warriors of Light have is not in fighting these monsters, but in inspiring people. Because you save the princess of Corneria, and you bring her back to the town, and these contractors, these bridge builders, uh, excitedly go to build a bridge to the mainland so that the Warriors of Light can walk across it and continue their quest to save the world. And they're so excited to be a part of the prophecy that they get it done in like two seconds. And it's silly and it's fun and it's a fun little fantasy story, but there was something that really touched me about that going back to this game where just the idea of hope coming through is so powerful for people in this world. You get the sense that they've been living without it for a very long time. And the introduction of the Warriors of Light, your party of heroes that's coming along to fight back these uh, four fiends and eventually fight back chaos is enough to inspire people to do the right thing and help each other and make the world better. So there's one of the first themes that we get in Final Fantasy, this idea of hope being brought about from the hearts of people. This is a major, major uh, story through line throughout every Final Fantasy game. It's not just a game about completing an objective and saving the princess, you know, it's not just about saving the world, getting to the end credits. It's about inspiring people and bringing light back to a world that's lost all hope. What it's also about is a very defined villain. At first, it doesn't feel very defined because all you're fighting against is chaos and the decay of the world. The earth is rotting. The wind is dying. The seas are going crazy and fire is losing its power. So you're fighting against entropy and the death of the world itself until you realize that there is somebody behind it and that somebody you believe is a being called chaos. But you come to find out that chaos is actually Garland, the first boss that you fought in the game, someone who stole the princess, right? He is chaos personified, literally in the game, but also, of course, figuratively in the narrative of the world. And his goal is he is going to perpetuate this cycle of decay and violence for all time to make sure that he lives forever. It's a bit convoluted, but in short, the plot of Final Fantasy, the idea of the villain Garland in Final Fantasy, is that he will travel back 2,000 years in time and send four fiends who are going to destroy those four crystals in the future. And when that happens, chaos will be created. Chaos will then send Garland back 2,000 years in the past, thus creating this infinite time loop where Garland creates himself as chaos to send himself back. And this cycle continues again and again and again. But what he didn't anticipate was the arrival of the Warriors of Light, your arrival, the player coming in and saving the day. That's what breaks the cycle. By going back in time and defeating Garland and making sure Chaos is defeated along with him, the Warriors of Light save the world and they return to a present day where they know that they saved everyone, but everyone else is just living a happy life. It's a really powerful story that's told in a very short amount of time, 
with the boost abilities, it took me about five hours to get the platinum on it. So it would take even less time if you were just going through it with a guide or something. But I had a really great time playing through this and it, it kind of touched me in a way that I didn't anticipate that it was going to. I thought that Final Fantasy 1, you know, it's the first one. A lot of the things come up, you know, you're going to get your crystals, you're going to get your job classes, um, you're going to find Excalibur, because that's the, you know, the classic medieval fantasy sword. Uh, but what I found going into it was a story being told by a development team that wanted to make a mark on the world. And they did really beautifully with the story of Final Fantasy. This idea that all it takes to bite back against cynicism and hatred and a cycle of violence that seems impenetrable is hope. And as saccharine as that may sound, listeners of the original episode that we did on Final Fantasy will know that Final Fantasy has, is at its heart a romantic series in the classical sense. And I find that there's nothing more romantic than hope winning out against despair. So then we come to Final Fantasy 2. Final Fantasy 2, the sophomore slump, the black sheep, the not so good one. <laughs> I'm joking. I'm joking. I actually really liked it this time around. I had realized while playing it that I had never actually beaten it. I had the Final Fantasy 1 and 2 um, collection on the Game Boy Advance. I had it on the PlayStation and I never got past probably halfway through the game. Final Fantasy 2 does a lot of the same things that Final Fantasy 1 does, but it changes it in a way that really does make it feel like this is a different game, and it makes it clear that this series is not going to be direct continuations, but rather different ideas explored with some of the same themes and uh, aesthetics. So Final Fantasy 2 is not about the four fiends or about chaos, but it is about another oppressive force that has taken over the world and set the status quo to be one of cynicism, hatred, and violence. And that is the empire. Now, Final Fantasy II came out uh, right around the time of Return of the Jedi, if I remember correctly. So the idea of rebels fighting back against an evil empire was pretty big in the cultural zeitgeist. And that's really what the story is. You play as uh, three main characters that comprise your party. And unlike Final Fantasy I, where they were unnamed warriors of light that just sort of showed up, these three characters, Firion, Rosa, and Guy, are all uh, orphans who were orphaned by the Empire in their conquest of the world and have decided to join the Resistance in an attempt to exact their revenge but also help the world uh, get rid of the Empire and the evil Emperor who uh, runs it. The story is much more narrative-driven than the first Final Fantasy game. I would say Final Fantasy is, the first one, is very antagonist-driven, where you're fighting against chaos, whereas Final Fantasy II is very uh, narrative-driven. This is different from a character-driven story, which we'll get into in 4, 5, and 6, where the, the story is progressed through the character's development. Uh, this is much more of a, the story has progressed through the plot development, which is not a bad thing. It's exciting for an adventure story. 
And the plot of Final Fantasy II is we have to travel the world and stop the Empire. So the way that you do this is you, you lose the fourth character, uh, the fourth orphan who was with Furion and the, and the others. So the fourth character in the party rotates throughout the game. And this is another trope that's set up in Final Fantasy, which is people die and you lose them and they don't actually come back. Final Fantasy II is the first time we see this. A lot of people think about death in Final Fantasy and they think about Aerith from Final Fantasy VII. Uh, but permanent death is something that has always been in the Final Fantasy series since Final Fantasy II. And it is shocking how touching these deaths can be in a short amount of time with these characters. Um, they join your party, they help you do a very particular task, and then without fail, they have to sacrifice themselves so that the party can continue. And similar to the idea of hope triumphing over cynicism in Final Fantasy I, none of those characters who sacrifice themselves think about it twice, even once. They are determined to help their friends because they know that it's going to save the world. So it shocked me how many deaths there are. Basically, if you're getting a new party member, they're going to be gone in a little bit and they're going to be gone permanently. So that was something that Final Fantasy II started. Another thing they did, which uh, hasn't really made a return, was instead of the job system that Final Fantasy I implemented with jobs like warrior, monk, black mage, white mage, all of the iconic Final Fantasy jobs or classes. Final Fantasy II didn't do this. They did a, uh, a an interesting stats-based system where um, it incentivized you fighting more because depending on what you did in the fight, certain stats would raise. So for example, you had to kind of search out adversity. So if I wanted to raise my HP, I needed to be hit by a monster and it needed to do significant damage because the idea would be that at the end of the battle, if Furion gets hit quite a bit, his HP will rise because he gets tougher. Same with your strength gets higher if you fight something stronger than you or your magic levels up the more you use it. It was a really cool idea that I think didn't see the light of day in later games as much as I think would have been worth it because it was it was a great way to make you seek out harder fights and not just want to grind all the time. It was a really interesting thing that I enjoyed quite a bit. It gets very grindy at the end of the game because at a certain point you kind of reach equilibrium where you're stronger than everything. So it's hard to kind of get stronger because in order to do that, you would need to be hit by something stronger than you and not much of those things exist, but I digress. It was a really cool system and it did away with jobs and kind of uh, opened up the customization for you a little bit uh, as you were playing through the game. The other thing it did was it made the villain, it continued with the twist of the villain. Um, just as Garland was the twist villain being chaos at the end of Final Fantasy I, the Emperor in Final Fantasy II, uh, you fight him at one point and you kill him. And instead of it being a twist that you didn't actually kill him, the twist is that he wanted you to kill him because that means that he went to hell and he was able to assert dominion over all of hell. So the final fights take place in literal pandemonium. 
uh, which I, I, I'm going to be honest, I don't think did a lot for the uh, thematic evolution of Final Fantasy. But what it did do was make Final Fantasy villains something really interesting to watch out for. It wasn't just Chaos and Garland, this guy who wanted to live forever. It was a cunning, conniving weirdo <laughs> called the Emperor whose plan it was to die, go to hell, and come back even stronger as a demon king. I think that that's something that definitely transfers over into later Final Fantasy games. The idea of uh, this monstrous enemy um, laying a trap for the heroes to fall into only for it to backfire on them entirely. We see that all the time in later Final Fantasy games. So Final Fantasy II, I would say they did a lot of interesting things, took a lot of chances, a lot of things that didn't carry over into later games, but I think that it still works in the story that it's telling. Very straightforward uh, resistance versus evil force um, story, and it's worth a shot if you haven't played it yet. Because I think that you go to Final Fantasy III after having played Final Fantasy II with a renewed vigor for the crystal story from Final Fantasy I. In true trilogy fashion, Final Fantasy is the origin. It tells the story. Final Fantasy II comes along, throws a couple of wrenches in the works, and things are very different. Final Fantasy III is back to formula, back to basics. It's the crystals again. There's something awful going on, and yet it is three times as big as the first story. I had never played Final Fantasy III because I couldn't. Final Fantasy III was never released, as I mentioned, in any uh, form other than the remaster and the remake that they made for Final Fantasy III on the DS. And that's not really this game. Of course, there's all the same beats and the same characters and things like this, but it's a very different experience. So playing through Final Fantasy III for the first time, as if I was playing it on the, Nint the Nintendo Entertainment System back in the late 80s, was a lot of fun because I had never really engaged with this story. And it was really cool going into Final Fantasy III having completed one and two because it was like seeing evolution in real time. So Final Fantasy III keeps the job system from Final Fantasy I, but it gives you the option to change your jobs anytime you want because each time you run into a crystal in the story of final fantasy 3 the crystal bestows new jobs onto the four main characters in the narrative sense of making them stronger so that they can fight the ultimate evil at the end of the game so instead of picking a warrior and kind of sticking to that at the beginning of final fantasy 1 you can start your character as a warrior and change them over to a, a white mage or a black mage or a monk or a thief or all these new jobs that were created, a Viking, a lot of fun things that uh, were thrown into the mix that you could switch out depending on the fight, depending on the boss to make your life a whole lot easier. It also made the characters a lot more uh, individual because in Final Fantasy one, if you picked a warrior that character was the warrior. They didn't have any spoken lines. They didn't do anything. It was just the role-playing was all on you. Kind of like a Dungeons & Dragons session, I suppose. Final Fantasy II comes along and says, no, they're not jobs. They're people. They're Furion, Guy, and Rosa, right? So there are these three people who we're going to flesh out a little bit, make them more of their own characters. Final Fantasy III comes along 
And it does the same, it, it kind of melds the two of them where, yeah, you have the uh, avenue of characterizing your uh, character through their job, but they also have dialogue throughout the story. They interact with different NPC characters. They are snarky kids who were, again, orphans who have just been chosen by uh, the powers that be to be the warriors of light to protect the world. So it's this kind of great culmination of what one and two did in a story that's very reminiscent of the first game, while also fleshing out more of this Final Fantasy tropiverse that we're exploring. Some of the things that I really liked, um, there's a lot of firsts in Final Fantasy III. Uh, Moogles were introduced, a Final Fantasy staple. They make their first appearance in the third game. Summons as well. Summons like uh, Leviathan. Um, the uh, if- Ifrit doesn't make an appearance, but a lot of the summons that you get, uh, you see in later games, they show up in this for the first time. There's also multiple worlds and continents that you get to traverse. So the game starts and you realize through talking to a lot of NPCs that you're on something called the floating continent. And it, it's you look at it and it's like the size of a world map from Final Fantasy 1. And then you leave the floating continent and there's an entirely different world that you get to explore. It's fascinating. So first time that the world really blew up and got bigger made you expect that from Final Fantasy games, that there would be different areas and different um, continents to explore. Um, but the thing that I really loved about this game was the endgame story, which I'm going to spoil for you if you haven't played it. I'm sorry, but it's, it's I think, worth playing, of course, but then also, I think if you go into it with what I'm about to tell you, you will enjoy it even more. So Final Fantasy III is again a, a story of these crystals that uh, make up the world and give power to the world's different elements have been corrupted. And it's not chaos this time. This time, it's a corrupt god. So there were three powerful beings that uh, I'm pretty sure are referred to as gods <clears throat> in Final Fantasy III. And these characters were all responsible for a different aspect of the world. One was responsible for dreams, one was responsible for magic, and the third, and the most villainous, was responsible for moral or mortality. Excuse me. Mortality. Although he did a failed uh, job of watching over morality, it should be said. So that character is named Zandi, and, or Zand. And Zand is basically trying to summon this personification of nihilism and and despair called the cloud of darkness because he wants this whole world to be thrust back into the nameless void of creation because he's tired of living that is maybe the most final fantasy villain thing i've ever heard of and it came from final fantasy 3 garland was selfish he wanted something for himself the Emperor, also selfish, he wanted to rule over everything as a demon king. Zand and the Cloud of Darkness, respectively, want everything to dissipate and return to zero. That is where every Final Fantasy game afterwards tends to go. So that was a huge part of Final Fantasy III setting the stage for the rest of the series. There was also, just as there was sort of a, a secret being 
revealed to you with the opening of the world and going to other continents, there was a great kind of final hour revelation that the crystals in our world are not the only ones. There's a dark world that's sort of the mirror to ours, and there are dark crystals there. But instead of it being evil or like a mirror universe Star Trek bad version of our world, it's just the other side of the coin. It's sort of like a low rule in The Legend of Zelda. It's just the thing that's opposite you. It's not evil. It's just the other side of the coin. And the dark warriors come through these crystals in the, the final dungeon, and they basically say, hey, uh, we dealt with the cloud of darkness ages ago, and we stopped it from eating everything and bringing everything back to the void. So now it's your turn, and we're going to help you do that. And they kind of give you their power. And on the opposite side of that, a really great scene that is in every Final Fantasy after Final Fantasy III, there is everyone that you've met and helped coming together in your hour of need and cheering you on. Again, this idea of hope, overcoming cynicism at every turn through the connections that you've made and the power of helping other people just by virtue of being a good person. It saves the world. And whether it's the people that you meet along the way, like Sid, the airship pilot, um, or uh, one of the last remaining ancients, again, another trope that shows up in some other Final Fantasy games, uh, they all come together at the end to cheer you on and make sure that the world is safe. And what I love about that is that it continues the through line of it's not just beating back a villain. It's not just beating Garland or the Emperor or the Cloud of Darkness. It's ideology fighting ideology. The idea that humanity has the light of hope within their souls, and that light beats back anger, evil, cynicism when it chooses to do so. It's that old quote of all it takes for evil to conquer is for good men to do nothing. Well, all that it takes for good to conquer evil is for good men to do. And that's what Final Fantasy is all about. And I wasn't expecting that story from Final Fantasy III. I don't know what I was expecting because I'm a big proponent of stories iterating on themselves and kind of building themselves as they go and taking the parts from other games, other stories that worked and building on those, taking parts that didn't work and kind of eschewing them. So I'm, I'm not sure why this surprised me, but at the end of the day, playing through Final Fantasy 1 through 3 did something that I think is the last trope that I really want to explore with these games. And that is, it gave me hope. Corny as it sounds, it did. That's why these games are so special. That's why we're getting the 16th Final Fantasy game in a month as I record this. It's because they give us hope. The final crawl of Final Fantasy III explicitly says that as long as there is hope in the hearts of people, something like the cloud of darkness can never triumph. This idea of nihilism coming in and eating away at all that we love and all that we cherish, all it takes is for maybe even just four people to stand up and say, I don't believe that's the right way, or I don't want to do that. And that to me is the true heart of Final Fantasy, doing the right thing even when the world is crumbling around you. So that's my breakdown 
of Final Fantasy 1, 2, and 3. I'm going to be uh, talking with Stefan about 4, 5, and 6 to round out my Final Fantasy Pixel Remasters, uh, I guess, typology slash review. But I really have enjoyed playing these, and as I'm recording this, I've just started Final Fantasy 6. And uh, it's pretty magical having played 1 through 5 before it, which I will certainly let you in on when I get there. In the meantime, thank you so very much for listening. If you have any questions or thoughts about the Final Fantasy series, or if you just want to poke my brain about it some more, send those to studyingpixels.com contact. And if you want to support us and get Studying Pixels Plus, then please visit us on studyingpixels.com plus. We will see you very soon. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.